0: So welcome everyone. I'm Serene Jones and it is my pleasure to um, introduce the 2015 President of the AAR and to uh, set the stage for our uh, pleasure, shared pleasure, in hearing his presidential address. Dr. Thomas Tweed, Tom is chair of American Studies at the University of Notre Dame where he holds the Harold and Martha Welch chair in American Studies and is also a professor of history. When you hear the list of what he does, it doesn't just tell you um, the uh, roles that he fills, but it says something about the person he is. He is faculty fellow in the Institute of Latino Studies and the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. And at Notre Dame, he is much beloved, not only for his many skills as an administrator and scholar, but also as a lively teacher, taking up at Notre Dame such topics as, in American studies, religion and ear religion. He previously taught at the University of Texas, the University of Miami, and the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, where he was chair of the Religious Studies Department, and also Zachary Smith, distinguished professor There he was also the Associate Dean of Arts and Sciences and the founding director of the first year seminar program. His own educational journey begins with Pennsylvania State University, then continued to Harvard where he received an MTS and then to Stanford where he received his MA and his PhD. His research, it's a long list of articles and edited volumes includes six books. It's been supported all along the way by prestigious grants and fellowship including three from the National Endowment for the Humanities. That's remarkable. He edited Retelling U.S. Religious History and co-edited Asian Religions in America, a documentary history which Choice named the outstanding academic book of the year. He also wrote the American Encounter with Buddhism from 1844 to 1912 Victorian Culture and the Limits of Dissent, and more recently Our Lady of the Exile Diasporic Religion at the Cuban Catholic Shrine in Miami which won the American Academy of Religions Book Award. His Crossing and Dwelling A Theory of Religion was published in 2006 and his most recent book America's Church the National Shrine and Catholic Presence in the National Capital also received again the AAR's book award for historical studies the list of what he's done to support the profession is long as well while he was writing all these books and teaching and running these um, institutions he was also serving as an external reviewer time and again He's been an expert witness, he contributes to blogs, he's been a museum consultant, and is ongoing in his role as a media advisor. He leads, I know it it starts to feel like how could anyone possibly do all this? He leads workshops for high school teachers. And he's been on the editorial boards of journal including church history and history of religions. In 2012, he was elected as vice president of the AAR And in 2014, now 2015, he stepped up to serve as president of the American Academy of Religion. All of these impressive facts begin to give you a picture of who he is, but they do not capture the complex gifts that make up Tom Tweed and allow him to cover this much terrain. I've had the pleasure of working with him over the past two years where he has taken very seriously the task of strengthening this democratically run, very large, and very diverse institution called the AAR. Many of you know that there's much behind the scenes work that Tom does not just at the AAR but everywhere else and many of you probably haven't even noticed all that he's done just this past year but he has made the AAR stronger and even more importantly better. The list of policies and the letters that he has helped to craft and send is long. We issued a statement under Tom's leadership on academic freedom. He oversaw the redefining of the member advocate position. He developed a policy statement on contingent faculty, began the process of redrafting and reconceiving the AAR sexual harassment policy and he designed a process and a set of policies and this is really remarkable that designates when where and how the AAR as an organization can weigh in on pr- pressing public issues that intersect with our missions and goals which allowed us in its kind of amazing that we did not have one of these before but it allowed us this time this year for the first time to collaboratively take on the board and the executive committee quick action quick action and it was a process uh, that was sparked by a recognition that we did not have this ability to respond quickly which was highlighted for us very clearly in the time it took the AAR to register its grave concern about the Salida case. Since this policy has been in place, we have sent a letter to Oshkosh about the threat to the religion department. We wrote Georgia, its state elected officials protesting the religious freedom policy that would have prevented the full inclusion of our LGBTI members. We wrote the regions and the state of Texas Uh, expressing our distress about legislation allowing guns to be concealed and carried on to the University of Texas campus. And most recently we wrote a letter to the University of Missouri affirming our support for academic freedom in the face of potential punitive actions against professors there who have stood up against racist hatred. And even since arriving at the AAR, Tom oversaw the writing of a strong statement in response to concerns that came from our members that there was and this letter condemns any form of anti-Muslim language or sentiment we take these complaints seriously and the quickness of action is crucial and because of Tom's work that happened and there is more to come to do this kind of work you need to be on the phone constantly encouraging comforting pushing people he does this lovingly and with humor lastly you can't take two steps at the AAR without meeting one of his beloved students. They are legion. And the clear affection and respect they have for their teacher is inspiring and moving. Today's address, valuing the study of religion, improving difficult dialogues within and beyond the AAR's big tents, puts before us the question of value and of values. In this presentation, Tom will share his own list, but the values he describes, you can be certain he himself embodies. Values I would add to the list of honesty, diligence, humor, kindness, sharpness of wit, rigor of mind, and perhaps most importantly of all, openness of heart. Thank you, Tom.
1: Thanks. I think I've changed my mind and we should just stop there, actually. Um, Soon after the initial joy of being elected president faded, I turned to my first decision, choosing a theme for the annual meeting and this address. I saw two approaches either select a theme that emerged seamlessly from my research or ask what we most needed to talk about at this particular moment. Even though I was daunted by the prospect of imagining the common concerns of a diverse AAR membership, I chose that second approach. What I asked myself are the problems we now face. A number of challenges came to mind. The study of religion ignored or devalued in the public arena, declining undergraduate majors, PhD graduates without meaningful work and humane working conditions, otherwise responsible doctoral granting institutions not reporting placement rates, adjusting admissions numbers, or altering graduate training. State legislatures and seminary boards challenging the importance of research and threatening academic freedom, and departments being cut or pressured to defend themselves in terms of a perversely narrow notion of utility a narrow notion that dictates higher education funding. Finally, in that initial reflection three years ago, I thought about the widely used metaphor of the Big Tent. That happens to be the Big Tent, by the way, if you were not sure. And, of course, our internal, divisive internal debates between humanistic and scientific approaches, between scholarship alone or advocacy too, and most of all between theology and religious studies. Complaints this fall about the AAR election because both uh, vice presidential candidates were theologian confirmed my original sense that we might need more and better talk about what we share and what we don't. In that conversation, as with many other debates, some of us stand clustered with the like-minded off to one corner of our big tent where we whisper and sometimes intemperately announce our objections. I don't object to objections, far from it, they're inevitable and good for us. What I regret is the lack of productive exchanges. We talk past each other or not at all. I know I couldn't fix that problem or all others, but I wondered if there might be one theme that could prod us to do more and better thinking about a few of those concerns. I decided it might help to talk about values in two tenses of the term. How the study of religion is valued or devalued in the public arena. And second, how we enact values in our work. To be more precise, I thought we needed more talk about valuing, the process of identifying and assessing guiding commitments and evaluative language. Respectful but frank conversation about our contested and converging values and how we justify them might help us address some challenges we face. So I began the year by identifying value terms encoded in 16 AAR official documents And in Religious Studies News' interview, I noted how Value Talk helped the AAR board and staff as we asked how we're enacting those stated commitments in our policies, and and including how we do enact those policies, including those to safeguard academic freedom, support contingent faculty, and articulate research ethics. We talk about that in in a session right after this. Today, I want to suggest that talk about values can also help with two other pressing concerns. It might help us to confront and clarify the divisive internal debates within the AAR, especially those between theology and religious studies. And second, value talk also might disclose points of agreement as we refine arguments we use to defend the study of religion in the public arena and on our campuses. To advance the conversation and address those challenges, we first need to reach agreement on a crucial point that value judgments are inevitable. We can't avoid using evaluative language to identify what's admirable, even if many interpreters since Hume have sharply distinguished descriptive and evaluative language and passionately defended the fact-value dichotomy. As the philosopher Hilary Putnam has argued, in vernacular speech and scholarly talk, we encode different kinds of values, moral values about the good, Aesthetic values about the beautiful, and epistemic values about the true. Philosophers have debated over whether those values are constructed or discovered, whether they arise from intuition or reason. They've contended about which position of the continuum of anti-realist to metaphysical realist positions best grounds that talk. My own position is a variant of realism with a small r, but that doesn't matter. We don't have to decide whether values are made or found to have a framework for frank conversations about which values we share and which we don't and about how we prioritize our common values. We can sidestep those debates by analyzing value talk. Consider how scholarly speech turns to the prescriptive idiom of the imperative mood to indicate what should be or to the hopeful expressions of the subjunctive mood to imagine what might be. Note that how scholars use what Putnam calls thin or more generic value terms, like ought, right, and good, and thick or more specific value terms, like coherent, reflexive, and objective. That analysis will lead us to, I think, agree that we all use value language to formulate normative judgments or claims about the way we ought to act and think. For those still reluctant to agree, consider the ways that values have shaped scholarship in the natural sciences and the science of religion as some early proponents labeled the field. Explicit talk about values in scientific scholarship is rare, but epistemic, moral, and aesthetic values guide scholarly practice nonetheless. Note how scientists turn to aesthetic language to describe one hypothesis as more beautiful, or mathematicians prefer one solution because it's more elegant. Simplicity and elegance are not the only values enacted in scientific scholarship. Precision, coherence, and explanatory power also play a role. Multiple values also inform the study of religion as we select topics, use terms, choose methods, interpret results, represent findings, and assess scholarship. That's been the case since the emergence of the comparative study of religion, The 1870s. A number of its early leaders used value terms to articulate the new science of religion's proper aims and methods. Disciplinary founders, like Mueller and Tila praised impartiality, yet in their developmental narratives, they used thick value terms like higher and lower, civilized and uncivilized, as they chronicled what they called religion's origin and growth. One of the two scholars to announce the new science of religion in 1870, Francis-Emile Bernouf, claimed that uh, the unpolemical discipline was free from prejudice, but assumptions that informed his ranking of white, yellow, and black races led him to presume that of all human races, only the white is capable of having founded a religious system of lasting value. Determining value is one of the scholars' tasks, according to most founding figures. They use different labels to distinguish the science of religion's two tasks— but many proclaimed that a descriptive test should be followed by a normative one. Mueller identified the field's two branches, comparative and theoretic, and so did Tila, who called them morphological and ontological, just as James distinguished two orders of inquiry that included making judgments of value. Value commitments also informed the efforts to introduce the study of religion into private and public universities in the United States. An uneasy blend of commitments to promote both scientific and personal scientific study and personal piety shaped those curricular initiatives between the 1890s and the 1920s. By the 1940s, when the first public university departments at Florida and North Carolina appeared, the appeals to scientific rhetoric had declined, but advocates still gestured to the legal constraints while they also found ways to preserve a place for the normative. By 1960, state university administrators had approved 10 other departments of religion. Those departments multiplied as more religious studies scholars also came to announce their commitment to impartiality, framed as Weberian value neutrality or phenomenological bracketing. And many borrowed language from the U.S. Supreme Court's 1963 Schemp decision to suggest they weren't teaching religion but teaching about it. Yet the role of value talk and normative judgments continued to be debated after 1964 when the AAR emerged as the organization's new name, and into the 1980s when the model of scientific objectivity emerged prominently again, and some departments suggested that the study of religion should be impartial, while others argued for value talk, even theology, in religious studies departments. The debates are still with us, as you might have noticed. An analysis of contemporary scholarly speech shows that we still use value terms to form judgments as we defend and evaluate scholarship. Obviously, it's true for ethicists who see their research as a mode of activism and for religious thinkers from all traditions who see their work as a contribution to religious as well as academic communities. Yet value talk also informs how other specialists, humanities scholars like historians and translators, assess research. When confronted with a reader's report or book review, we sometimes turn to language that implies there's an ethics of reading, when we assert that a criticism is uncharitable or unfair. But I've also heard translators of sacred texts say that this rendering is more faithful to the original and that one is, echoing the mathematician's aesthetic language, more elegant. Historians say that this narrative isn't inclusive and that one is triumphalist because it centers one faith. Yet another account is admirable because it vividly portrays how religions lived by ordinary people in everyday life. Scholars who reveal little about their own guiding commitments, for example, those who see their work as the critical cultural study of religion or the objective scientific study of religion, also use value terms to construct normative judgments as they defend their work and contest that of others. Some who align with what Samuel Preuss called the field's naturalistic lineage, imagine their work as contributing to the critical study of religion, as with the editor of a recent volume, who exhorts specialists to analyze the discourse of practitioners and scholars to show how they impose ideologies in the guise of descriptions. For examples from critical cultural studies, we can begin with a well-known critique of essentialist definitions, a text celebrated by those who align with post-structuralism and post-colonial theory. Its author announces a value priority, that attending to power as we analyze practices is more admirable than attending to meaning as we read symbols. And he declares that the most praiseworthy aim is to problematize standard accounts. Another often cited book in this lineage makes a similar point. The author discloses that she wants to challenge the just so story by surfacing the actual historical processes and excavating the covered over ideological persuasions. A third influential scholar on in this trajectory who exhorts us to see religious studies as cultural studies also challenges standard discursive practices while affirming the emphasis on power, the rejection of essentialism, and the concern about colonialism. The difficulty is that some of these scholars, who offer crucial insights about how religious discourse has functioned, can be quick to uncover the condemnable presuppositions of historical actors and contemporary interlocutors, but slow to disclose and scrutinize their own motivating commitments. In a second naturalistic lineage, the language shifts from discourse analysis to data explanation as investigators advocate value-free scholarship aligned with the natural or social sciences. They sometimes say things like, it's wrong to permit value language in the study of religion. Yet the declaration is itself prescriptive and rests on evaluation that was supposed to be excluded. A commitment to particular epistemic values is also evident when quantitative social sciences say someone's research is sloppy or when a qualitative social scientist criticizes an ethnography because it's insufficiently reflexive. For other illustrations, we can again consider examples from well-known texts. One leading guidebook suggests this naturalistic approach began as an affiliation with the the values of scientific rationality. The goal, it says, is to forsake essentializing confessional approaches and retrieve data according to the generally shared scientific evidentiary principles of the modern academy. That means gaining descriptive mastery of the facts of religion, and then developing taxonomies and theories. Theorists in cognitive science of religion agree, as with one researcher who aims to advance hypotheses amendable to empirical investigation. Implicitly appealing to the value of coherence, he says his explanation uh, aimed to tie together features that other scholars have identified. Finally, another scholar who defends the academic study of religion as genuinely scientific says that that entails a search for objective knowledge of the world and conscious attempts to avoid or eliminate, or reduce at least, bias. Yet that offer of Straugs employs strongly prescriptive language as he deplores the appeal to any non-cognitive criteria, especially religious criteria, and warns that scholars must eschew unacceptable interference, or risk the betrayal of the discipline as a scientific endeavor. That religion scholar invokes epistemic values, including objectivity, and our analysis of contemporary scholarly speech has generated a long list of other values, both minimal values that seem indisputably indispensable, internal coherence, empirical adequacy, and ideal values that some might suggest are desirable, Elegance, precision, reflexivity, inclusivity, complexity, and hermeneutical charity. If you're now convinced about my first point, and I'll just imagine you are, that we all use value terms to make normative judgments about how we ought to act or think, I want to make a second point. I suggest that acknowledging and assessing our values and their justifying beliefs and animating feelings can help us face two challenges I mentioned at the start. It can productively reframe internal AAR debates about theology and religious studies, and turning into our own institutions and public arena, it might usefully refine our defenses of religion in higher education. First, value talk. can promote dialogue about issues that divide us. A Plenary session tomorrow will address the divide between theology and religious studies, just as previous presidential addresses have probed the problem. I'm not sure I can do better than my predecessors, but I'll take a different approach and what I hope amounts to more than Mercutio's despairing exclamation in Romeo and Juliet about the futility of inter-familial feuds, a plague on both your houses though I do help, think it would help to re, for both religious studies scholars and theologians to recast their talk. Again, the choice is not about whether to use evaluative language to formulate prescriptive utterances. It's about which values to affirm and how to prioritize them. Like some others trained in religious studies, early in my career, I thought about the difference between theological and non-theological approaches as between those who made normative judgments and those who didn't. In fact, working for years at public universities, I presumed that First Amendment constraints and institutional setting required that framing. I was obliged to teach about religion and avoid favoring any viewpoint. I still try to fairly represent diverse views, yet by 1997, my position had begun to change and in my 2006 theory of religion, Crossing and Dwelling, I had reformulated my view. I spoke openly of my own social position, assessment criteria, and guiding values, from epistemological humility and analytic complexity to equity and inclusivity. And some other religious studies scholars have agreed that normativity is unavoidable and that surfacing value commitments might help us as we reimagine the relation between theology and religious studies. So how can that kind of value talk help? It can help us gain clarity about our commonalities and differences. But what do we share, or more precisely, what would we share if we met our role-specific obligations as those duties are informed by our guiding values, our subspecialization norms, and institutional missions? We'd commit ourselves to a two-step process of articulating and appraising value language, the ones, the kind of language we use to formulate our normative judgments about what scholars ought to do and say. We can ready ourselves for that exchange, one in which we state the reasons our judgments are warranted and actively listen to our interlocutors' counterarguments, by committing to the principle of fallibilism, not regarding our own conclusions as free from criticism, and by cultivating the requisite virtues, including empathy, humility and generosity. In other words, inculcate habits of thinking, feeling, and doing that enact our principled openness as we try to understand the other. But it's about more than the humility and empathy. We should also demonstrate the virtue of receptive generosity. Generosity means giving and taking in the proper proportion. To only take is theft. To only give is arrogance. Finally, being a receptive giver requires more than articulating values and acknowledging limits. To productively engage the other also requires that we give reasons. As one philosopher of religion has put it, the academic study of religion should not be distinguished from other ways of studying religions by excluding evaluative approaches, but rather by excluding the claims that cannot be challenged. What is excluded is the unwillingness to give reasons for one's claims even if giving reasons means explaining where you think reasons come to an end. In other words, the ten is big, not infinite. More concretely, then, what does all this mean for how scholars might approach this fraught discussion about the boundaries of the academic study of religion? Well, before I offer suggestions that I think might unwittingly offend, I should be clear about my own vantage point. I've taught in public and private universities. For 25 years, I worked in public university religious studies departments, and I'm now in history at American Studies as Catholic university. At a Catholic university. Notre Dame, not Catholic university. My colleagues are in the audience. So I come at the problem as a scholar of comparative and cross-disciplinary study of religion, but one has become convinced, as I hope to convince you, that we all make normative judgments whether we say so or not. I'm not a theologian, though I studied Christian theology and Buddhist philosophy as a graduate student, and continue to listen in on Christian, Buddhist, and multi-faith conversations. For those who write from and for religious communities, effective participation might begin by recalling beliefs and practices that acknowledge the limits of human's capacity to answer ultimate questions. Consider Jewish authors' reluctance to write the name of God and Muslim artists' use of organic and geometric forms to gesture toward that which cannot be represented. Consider the Buddhist affirmation of the inexpressibility of ultimate reality and Christian emphasis on mystery. Prepared for dialogue by that reminder about limits, perhaps you then might expand the sources for theolo- constructive re- religious reflection. Of course, some AR members might insist that a particular sacred text exhausts all religious truth, and if they teach in a freestanding institution that trains religious leaders, they could focus on what a text has to say to one religious community while de-emphasizing scholarship in university disciplines, including religious studies. Some might even propose, not me, that an ecclesial focus is possible for constructive reflection in a university divinity school or theology department. However, those who attend only or primarily to their own faith community have little hope of productive cross-disciplinary conversations. Constructive religious reflection conceived in that narrow way can't dialogue with disciplines, much less integrate knowledge. Those who advocate that approach shouldn't be surprised if university colleagues don't grant their work the respect it deserves. Those thinkers have no ground to lament the marginalized position in the secularized academy. To participate more fully, those who speak from and for faith communities have to be in conversation with academic colleagues and their standards of adjudication, although of course always critically. Many theologians have proposed that if religious thinkers want us to speak across the disciplines and reach the wider culture, it can help to acknowledge a wider range of sources. Going beyond scripture, or for Catholics, scripture and tradition, to include appeals to reason, lessons from history, findings from science, insights from practice, and analysis of experience. Further, most theologians listen in on academic conversations from philosophy and anthropology to queer theory and women's studies. Yet far fewer consider religious studies scholarship about their own tradition or others. I'm reluctant, not too reluctant, a little reluctant to tell you how to do your work But I wonder if it might help if more Christian theologians imagined other religions and the comparative study of religion as sources for religious reflection. Of course, Christian theologians need not become an expert on Islamic law, Hindu pilgrimage, or Buddhist art. But a bit more reading and cross-disciplinary studies of their faith and other traditions might help, however as theologians engage university colleagues and attempt a more fruitful exchange with religious studies specialists about what unites and divides us. Now it's the religious studies folks' turn. Just as some theologians seem to need the oppositional other, the academy's secularizers, so too some religious studies scholars defiantly define their identity in opposition to confessional approaches. But as I've argued, religious studies specialists do plenty of confessing, whether they admit it or not. For those who want to engage theologians, it might help to begin, as I I encouraged your interlocutors to begin, by recalling your commitment to remain open to new knowledge. But as with theologians, religious studies scholars need to do more. Most important, they might reframe the conversation as a discussion about which value we want to prioritize and which judgment we want to defend and not about the normative and non-normative. Whether you see the study of religion as critical or scientific or both, you might say more about what you mean and why you think such a commitment is warranted. Just as theologians have cleared a path, at least some of them, for generative exchanges, some religious studies scholars have explicitly probed values and said which commitments inform their scholarship. For example, one of the three cultural studies scholars I mentioned acknowledged his his guiding epistemic and moral values. That post-colonial theorist said he emphasizes diversity and complexity and highlights the West's violent colonialist heritage because of its institutional location as a scholar of Indian religion working within a Western metropolitan university. That sort of value talk improves the conversation. Differences don't dip- disappear Not all of us would embrace diversity and complexity as our highest values. Yet that disclosure, we can now begin to see overlapping commitments and clarify real differences. What happens next? After we're standing closer in the big tent and chatting about values, as a friend asked who read this draft, well, my immediate response is to say, geez, what else do you want? I've at least got you talking. But that seems a little grumpy, so let me retract that and clarify my expectations. Even if some of you can agree that there's merit in value talk, I don't expect the scholar of Indian sacred texts working at a public university to hum Jesus loves me, this I know, on her way to a session on Schleiermacher's theology. Nor do I expect the Divinity School Protestant theologian to sign up for introductory Sanskrit. Meeting our obligations as members of this inclusive group requires only that we catch ourselves before issuing unnuanced condemnations of those with different approaches. If we want to go farther toward minimal familiarity, a few small actions might help. Skimming an article or asking a question. How much familiarity? Perhaps just enough that a hint of uncertainty creeps in. Those of, one of us who want to go beyond productive uncertainty and minimal familiarity to generously give and take will find, I predict, some unexpected alliances and surprising commonalities. We have overlapping epistemic values, including coherence and complexity. And many also would affirm some moral values announced in the AAR's documents, like equity and democratic accountability. The real challenge is, and greatest rewards will come as we go further still to talk about how we might prioritize or rank order our common values, deciding that this one's more important than that one. Getting to value prioritization entails a democratization of inquiry. We acknowledge our varied demands arising from diverse settings, but also open our, our deepest values and most impassioned judgments to continuing scrutiny. That approach Acknowledging institutional context and debating value priorities also can help, I suggest, as we seek solutions to another challenge that we must meet today to find more effective ways to defend the value of the study of religion on campus and in the public arena. And as Serene suggested, we've done a lot of this defending uh, this in this last year. We're living in a time, or yet another time, when the value of higher education is being challenged. The statistics fly as pundits do their cost-benefit analysis. Higher education's defenders note that the average college graduate makes 60% more than the average high school graduate, while critics point out that only half of graduates strongly agree that college was worth the cost. Even some bean counters worry that the curricular focus on occupational niches rather than broader liberal arts training could lead to disappointment as the inevitable market shifts leave narrowly trained graduates waiting tables. We don't have the robust analysis we need to reach firm conclusions about the religion majors value, but the evidence we do have seems somewhat positive. In a recent study, the majority of religious studies graduates said they agreed or strongly agreed that they choose the same major again, and only 5% strongly regretted their decision the value of the academic study of religions also regularly disputed and defended in the public arena. In courts, prisons, schools, hospitals, embassies, the military, and the media. For example, some public figures recently have mounted defensives, as when Justice Sonia Sotomayor recommended in a 2015 talk that undergraduates should study religion and not just your own, so they can understand the world around them. And for the same reasons, Secretary of State John Kerry revealed that if I headed back to college today, I'd major in comparative religions rather than political science because religion affects nearly every issue central to U.S. foreign policy. In a similar way, specialists in other fields have suggested either that religious practice is adaptive for the individual or knowledge about religion is crucial for carrying out their duties in a variety of occupations, from physicians and social workers to legislators and diplomats. AR members say similar things when we defend the study of religion on campus and in public, but also point to multiple goods as we do everything from talk with alumni about the role of theology in a Catholic university to demonstrate to legislators the utility of religious studies for democratic citizenship. Our rhetorical strategies are as varied as our institutional settings and vocational responsibilities, but there are patterns that cross the divides. Whether we align with religious studies or theology, we tend to make three primary types of arguments for the the field's value, often combining them. We say that the academic study of religion advances knowledge enriches individuals and improves society. The first sort of argument about advancing knowledge takes two forms. Either scholars suggest that the study of religion should be valued for its own sake, or keeping with the focus within the campus walls, proponents note that it makes important contributions to academic fields. A second cluster of arguments focuses on what such intellectual pursuits do for the individual. Those arguments have both faith-based and secular versions. In its most widely accepted form, it suggests that the study of religion leads to the enrichment of life. And the AAR's 2015 survey of the major's impact supports that argument. Since about 86% of graduates say that the major made a positive contribution to the quality of their life. Such study is enriching because religious traditions propose answers to the most important questions about human existence. And reflecting on those can provide meaning, purpose, and comfort. Studying religions also yields transforming moral benefits, these sorts of defenders suggest, and countering other ways of being human inculcates satisfying and praiseworthy habits. The study of religion increases students' empathy, tolerance, and openness. These personal enrichments, some argue, also advance the collective good, and a third cluster of defenses points to the impact in the public arena. The study of religion can reduce the bigotry that leads to conflict and violence, some propose. It can broaden narrow sectarian visions and that broadening begins with the respectful and responsible comparison. Many defenses of comparative study rest on an assumption first announced by Mueller, he who knows one knows none. And they emphasize the utility of empathetic understanding of other cultures for making sense of the past and comprehending the present. Again, survey results hint that we might be doing a good job with a strong majority of graduates saying that religion majors help them to understand the past and the present and know more about U.S. and global religious diversity. That means, this third line of argument suggests, the study of religion creates the conditions for democratic citizenship, social justice, and peace building. It's not only good for the academy and the individual, it improves collective well-being. These arguments for the value of the study of religion, it advances knowledge, enriches individuals, and improves society, all have merit. But if if we hope to persuade detractors, we might try to refine them. Three refinements might help, I suggest, and those begin with more and better value talk. First, we might make sure that everyone involved identifies his or her guiding values, It can help if scholars explicitly name their commitments. This doesn't mean such disclosures will settle debates or that arguments about religion's intrinsic value, for its own sake, are always most persuasive. Clearly, that's not the case. In fact, my experience suggests the opposite usually holds true. Insisting that some things are just worthwhile can have little effect. It's not surprising that administrators and funders deliberating about the fate of an endangered department think in utilitarian terms. They measure the benefits that will result from the costs. Yet eventually appeals to utility come to an end, as the philosopher John Dewey suggested. Some goods are not good for anything, they're just goods. And any other notion leads to an absurdity, for we cannot stop asking the question about instrumental good, one whose value lies in its being good for something, unless there's something that is intrinsically good, good for itself. In other words, defenders of religion's importance might find themselves needing to appeal to instrumental arguments, but we also might make sure that everyone articulates working presuppositions and bedrock values. That can advance the conversation, even if it only reveals the nature and extent of the disagreement. In my various professional roles, I've used all those arguments for the study of religion's importance. I think I've used all of them in letters this year. But since I urge you to acknowledge values, I should also note, I take seriously my obligation to be a good steward of university funds and a responsible tutor to this generation of students. I also care about advancing social justice, creating sustainable environments, and building lasting peace. To take small steps toward those social goods in the classroom, I try to cultivate empathy, the ability to understand others by making the familiar strange and the strange familiar. I do so in the hope that interpersonal understanding allows us to act compassionately, to feel with others as we work generously to bring about more fair, sustainable, and peaceful ways of being in the world. My experience in the classroom for more than a quarter century has convinced me that the comparative study of religion can produce those kind of personal transformations, which in turn contributes to these collective goods. But an administrator might respond by suggesting she's less interested in peace and justice. Or more likely, that those lofty aims can't be her guiding motives for curricular decisions. Her role-specific obligations, as she sees them, might lead that official to insist that other values, efficiency, employability, are higher goods. At that point, we might not be able to work out differences in a way that leads to a greater support for the study of religion, but at least we know about the rules of the games we're playing as we contend for limited resources. The current rules of the game in most institutions demand that we talk about the study of religion's relevance in terms of its instrumental value. To make, make a case for its value is to suggest it's pertinent in a particular context for a particular purpose. It's always valuable to someone for something. Even if arguments about the value of the field for its own sake would be more persuasive in some setting than others, So defenses should be context-sensitive. Religion's advocates have tended to offer decontextualized arguments that presume some general state of affairs, yet actual negotiations about curricular value are enacted within particular cultural settings and institutional frameworks. No single argument will work everywhere. For example, the intrinsic value argument might be received more warmly in religious affiliated schools though in such contexts the comparative and cross disciplinary emphasis of religious studies might be seen as a threat to faith formation a prized educational outcome arguments that highlight the study of religions contribution to the humanities might have been might have more impact in liberal arts colleges like Swarthmore than they might in universities with a special focus on science and engineering say MIT we could multiply the examples the point Differences persist and context matters. Institutional context and social setting determine which arguments might yield the best results and which good might be most widely valued among the local conversation partners. That means, and this is a final way we might refine our arguments, we should resist the temptation to narrow our focus to a single value or sole purpose. The study of religion yields many goods. There isn't just one answer to the question of the discipline's value. To improve our chances of success in exchanges with stakeholders, we can cite the evidence we have, but it would be helpful to get more information, perhaps collaborating with other ACLS organizations to commission a new survey that would give us more comparative data about the relative value of the religion major. And wherever we say in our fraught internal dialogues about our competing values as we negotiate with campus administrators and respond to public critics, I hope we focus on the commitments we share. Most important, wherever we stand in this big and clamorous tent, we stand with others who agree about the intrinsic and pragmatic value of the study of religion. Thanks.